Hey, church, welcome to an online worship service. It is the first of the month today. So if you're watching this on Saturday night, welcome to the future. Um, but it's a communion Sunday. And so, so just take a second, pause your device, pause your TV, um, get a bread, get a cup. Um, we're going to celebrate communion together in a minute. In the meantime, let's lift up one of my favorite worship songs. His name is Higher Than the Rising Sun. Let's get after it. Here we go.
So as I mentioned, it's a communion week. And before we sing this song, just to kind of prepare our hearts for communion, I wanted to bring to your attention the idea of the table in Scripture and what it represents. The table or the banquet feast comes up hundreds of times in Scripture. In fact, it has to do with some of the most famous Scripture. You don't really think about it. He prepares a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Song of Solomon says, he sits me at his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. The idea of the table in scripture is the place around which uh, the children of God experience the fullest blessings of God's kingdom. The table, a meal, a banquet, a festival. That's what that symbolizes in scripture over and over and over again. And all of that scripture, every time it comes up, Jesus tells a parable about a banquet feast and the guests that didn't want to show up and who he's going to go get instead. That The table is a significant uh, image in the scripture. And it all kind of comes to a head uh, the night before, uh, you know, the, the trial and the crucifixion, the Last Supper, where Jesus gathers his disciples around a table and says, spoiler alert, uh, when you gather to eat and drink together, uh, you're really feeding on me. You're feeding on my spirit. You're feeding on the blood that I'm going to sacrifice. They didn't quite get it at the time, but that's what he was trying to teach them. And so we as Christians, when we gather around the table uh, for a meal, uh, it is still a symbol of, of our unity, of our community, our blessing in the Lord. Uh, and when we gather at communion, uh, it's the same thing. It's, it's a, a much deeper uh, experience. And so uh, I was chatting with Pastor Scott and we were thinking about, uh, you know, this is the last weekend before the election and it's probably going to be contentious and continue to be contentious for a few weeks on end and we pray settle down and be decisive. But um, I'll bet there's a bunch of people who just are not feeling like, let us gather at the blessing table. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I don't feel like that. Um, so we wanted to uh, prepare for communion this week by, by singing this song, The Blessing, that's, that's come to mean a lot to people in 2020. And even though it's not really like a typical communion song, um, we want to invite you to remember what the table symbolizes in the scripture. It is the full bounty of Christ's promise of the kingdom that is here and yet to come. Um, Jesus is still serving meals. Whatever happens, you know, whatever, whatever, um, whatever is going on in our country, um, Christ is setting the banquet feast for his family and wants us to gather and remember him. And so we're going to try and do that. There we go. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Sing that together again. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May it be in his name.
just hear the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.
So we gather at the table and may his favor be upon you and your children for a thousand generations. As we gather, we remember that the reason we have this hope for a brighter future, for a better redeemed heaven and earth is because of Jesus Christ, whose body was broken for you and nourishes us and feeds us today in our spirits, in our lives. Eat and remember Jesus Christ. This fellowship that we can enjoy as we celebrate God's bounty is made possible by the blood that he shed because in our unrighteousness, we cannot have communion. We can't share the table with the Lord. He's too holy. And um, through the blood of Christ, we were made able to sit down uh, like children at their father's table and celebrate everything that's good and wonderful in our world. Um, Drink and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Let's sing it one more time together. Hey there, family. How are you doing today? Hey, first of all, before we get into any announcements, I just want to say Dodger fans out there, congratulations. Man, so happy for you guys. Mainly happy for my wife, but happy for all of you Dodger fans out there. Congrats, Dodgers. So fun to watch. Hey, a couple of announcements going on uh, that I've got for you this week. First of all, if there's anything that we can be praying for you for this week, We legitimately would love to pray for you. So even now, if you want to take a second and think about something that we could be praying for this week, go ahead and text that over to 97,000. We would love to pray for you this week. A couple of things coming up. This Sunday, November 1st, there is a community prayer walk uh, at 2 p.m. You're meeting over by the mall and doing a little walk. And honestly, just a cool opportunity to pray for our community and pray for just lots of craziness that's going on here, especially over the next few weeks. If you're interested in that, bring a mask and head on over 2 p.m. this Sunday. Ladies, this Monday, we have another women's courtyard gathering here at the church, 6.30 p.m. Pretty casual time to just get together, spend some time in God's word. We'd love to see you out for that. Marriage Essentials is coming up in two weeks on November 15th, Sunday morning during the 9 a.m. service. Come on over and check that out with the risers. It's a great time. And then in three weeks, our newcomers lunch is on November 22nd. If you're newer to the church, uh, if you've been around uh, just lately, we'd love to have you come out and check out that newcomers lunch. It's after second service on Sunday, November 22nd. As always, ways to give, you can give online. You can give uh, by mailing in a check. Thank you so much for your continued giving. And speaking of money, check out this amazing food delivery video. Well, hey there, everybody. It is Scranton Josh, and we are going to do a food delivery today. Yeah, baby. Nice costume. Dude, I told you I was going to be Dwight Schrute. Yeah, and I thought that was a great idea. Good job. Double Dwight, whatever. All right, let's just do this. Double Dwight. 
ready to deliver some food to the Joneses. Let's go spin the wheel. Pizza! Pizza! Let's go. Josh Bucks. Dwight here. Congratulations. Congratulations, you are winners of the raffle. We've got some dinner here for you. We have a couple of questions. Couple it, questions. Before you can eat your food. One, do you prefer the office or parks and rec? Parks and rec family. Okay, excellent. Can you finish this sentence? Bears, beats. Battlestar Galactica. Okay, there's one more song though, right? Yeah. You Could you finish the <laughs> lyrics to no. Bye Bye? Miss America. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Little Sebastian. Little Sebastian. Hey, well, we love you guys and hope that you have an awesome dinner. We miss you guys so much. It's so good to see your faces. It's great to see your faces too. Definitely. All right, enjoy dinner. Bye, guys. See ya. Well, greetings, church, and again, as usual, I apologize for that video. You know, I'm probably only uh, two or three emails away from me really canceling that whole program, and so you uh, don't have to uh, continue to see those. No, but in all seriousness, it's just a fun way for us to stay connected with some of you that are uh, disconnected, and so hopefully that's a blessing. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me. We're in John chapter 5 as we're just working our way through uh, the book of John, and hopefully you continue to be uh, encouraged by this each week. I know in my own study, I'm encouraged by uh, this, uh, just looking at different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry, and uh, through, the, through the lenses, if you remember, through the lenses of Jesus' best friend, uh, John. And so uh, today, the passage we're titling this message, Jesus Confirms identity. Really, if you think about it for a moment, there's not much of a debate anymore in our culture and in our world as to whether or not Jesus existed. Most can agree that he was a man that, that walked the earth and that he uh, was here for a season of time. But there is a lot of debate, as you would imagine, about who he is. Unbelievers have suggested many possibilities to avoid recognizing him as God. Why is that? So often the reasons that we don't want to recognize him as God is because really there's ramifications to that. If he is God, there's a response that would be associated with that. And so many conclude he was a model to follow, but not a means by which someone is saved. Or he was an example of faith, but not the object of faith. A lot of confusion as this arises, but really the thing that I see neglected so often in conversations about who Jesus is, is really looking at his actual words. Who did he claim to be? Who did he say that he was in interactions? And you think about it in today's text, it's really the most specific that Jesus, to my knowledge, ever gets about explaining clearly who he is. So does Jesus claim to be God in the flesh as so many have clung to as believers, present day Christians or Christ followers would believe? Well, I would say the clear and simple answer is yes, absolutely. We're going to see it here in our text today, 
But really, when you think about the whole of Scripture, there's nowhere else that I can point to that there's such a formal, systematic explanation of his unity with the Father, his divine authority, proofs of him being the Messiah, all of them being something that he lays out for us to explore. And really what it does is it creates a tension because it pushes us to have to decide ourselves. When he lays out the evidence, who do we say that he is? I like how C.S. Lewis sums it up very nicely in Mere Christianity. He says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not, not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together and even gather around your word because if in fact, which we cling to as truth, you are God, then there's something to your words. That's why we gather each week around them. And so we believe that there's power in the words of scripture and we believe it has the power to change us, to transform us, to change our outlook on our circumstances, on our world. And we're asking that that happens even in our time together now. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. All right, so starting in where we left off last week, actually I'll jump back just one verse, chapter five, Verse 16, picking up in our story, our account of Jesus's interactions, says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Remember, these things means healing a man that had been a paralyzed or, 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 or unable to walk for just years and years, 36 years prior to that. So that's what he's doing on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We'll pause there and look at this. What is Jesus actually saying? You see his words. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Basically, Jesus is linking his activity to God's activity. If you're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath, basically Jesus is saying, then you're also accusing God himself. If this isn't clear enough of a claim for him being on par or equal with God, that's also mentioned in John 10, 30, very specific, Jesus says, I and the Father are one very specific. And there's no confusion in his audience. You see, they understood him clearly as making himself, you see it there in the text, equal with God. Equal with him in nature, but distinct from him as the son, but really no room as was mentioned earlier, no room for him to just be a good teacher or a wise prophet, as so many have tried to conclude about him. You think about the world religions of this day and the different explanations that they give about Jesus. They acknowledge his existence, 
but they get confused about who he is. The Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe that Jesus was a God, and so are you, small g. Muslims say that he was a prophet. The Baha'i say that Jesus is the manifestation of God and a prophet, but inferior to their prophets, Muhammad and Baha. Buddhism says Jesus is not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Christian science founder says that Jesus was definitely not God. All of these are confused, but not understanding who Jesus claimed to actually be. Here, his opponents understood it, that he was claiming to be equal with God. And look at their response because of that. What does it say is their response? It says they were all the more determined to what? What's it say in the text? To kill him. Like, wait a second, like that escalated quickly. What's the, what's the intensity for? The mere man claiming deity was considered blasphemy. And there in their culture, that was something that was punishable by death. So they were just being good Jews in the fact that they were resisting somebody, resisting somebody that claimed to be God. Where they faulted, though, is they never considered the possibility that maybe he was. Maybe, maybe this man that's claiming it that just healed somebody that couldn't walk is actually who he says that he is. This is now a turning point in his relationship. I mentioned that last week, a turning point in his relationship with the religious leaders because instead of supporting or getting behind his claims, instead they're decided to resist and oppose him at every turn possible. It's interesting to see Jesus's response. Instead of backing off on his claims in light of these accusations, instead of backing off and being like, well, that's not really what I intended. That's not what I was meaning. Instead of doing that, he does the exact opposite. He only intensifies his claims with verifiable evidence. Take a look at that in verse 19. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives them life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Stop there. There's a lot to chew on. Basically, Jesus just unloaded on these guys. But notice his first initial words. He says, truly, truly. Actually, three times in this interaction, he'll repeat those words. Basically, that's an emphatic way of saying, I'm telling you, the truth. You've got to listen to me. You've got to listen. Your eternity depends on that. Basically, the tension of free will and what it creates, the idea that man has a choice to either accept or reject what's told them. In this case, Jesus deals with that exact same thing that we still deal with. We present truth, and then you have a choice as to what somebody does with that truth. 
I know uh, Adrian and I have felt that tension with our kids where, man, that whole free will thing is such a bummer where you, you want to present truth to them, but then they select which things they're going to absorb and which things they're going to resist. And when you're explaining, you've got to trust me. I've been there. I know better. You so desperately want them to get it. I get that sense as Jesus is trying to explain to these religious leaders. But here he goes into this explanation that only, he only does what he sees the Father doing. Basically, they're operating in perfect unity. He says the Son does likewise. He's co-equal with God in power and ability. This again is a, another claim to deity. Whatever he did was an act of God. Whatever he said was the word of God. Nothing he didn't perfectly reflect the Father in. This was, a, as he describes, a, a perfect demonstration of the, the love relationship that the father had with the son. He also forecasts, do you see it there? He forecasts that there's even cooler things. He's like, if you've been impressed with the miracles you've already seen, there's even better stuff ahead. What does he describe? He says, there's gonna be greater things to come. The dead will come back to life. Now that we're on the other side of the gospels, we see that that actually played itself out three specific times in the account of Jesus's ministry. First, the uh, widow's son that was brought back to life. Then Jairus's daughter was brought to life. His close friend Lazarus that's died is brought back to life. Who can do this other than God in the flesh? God in an earth suit, if you will. We see that it's not just authority over physical life, also authority over spiritual life. It says, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. I was stewing on that a little bit this week and how often we talk about that, that someday you're gonna stand before God the father and give an account for your actions and have to give an account whether you accepted or rejected his son. Uh, and you think about that for a moment, based on what Jesus is saying, who does the judging? Who does the judging here? Jesus says, I'm the one that judges. I'm the one that decides. So at the end of your days, if you're standing before your maker, you're standing before Jesus himself. And when he's asking you why you've rejected the provision, it's not the provision God the Father is saying of his son, it's the provision of himself. The judge is the one that came down off of the throne and paid the penalty for your sin. So you got to really take that uh, thought and play that out carefully before you come with your game plan to say, you know what? I've rejected your son, but have you seen my resume? Have you seen my resume of my good works? It's not, I accidentally said son, but it's not saying your son, you yourself, Jesus. I've rejected what you've done, but look at my resume. What a, a foolish game plan going into eternity. It says, because he is the judge, that should evoke honor. Something that's happened in our culture where, where those in, in leadership and authority are no longer elevated, but God brings it back is something that say, this should evoke honor. What's interesting about that is again, even subtly, that's another claim of deity. If you look at Isaiah 48, 11, God explains his unwillingness to share his glory with anyone. But here, what's he saying? It's multiple times he's saying that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Putting them on an equal playing field is a pretty major claim from Jesus Christ himself. 
So basically in this confrontation with the religious leaders, that's who he's speaking to right now. In this, you get a little glimpse of Jesus's heart too. In the middle of this rebuke, when he could have just been completely done with this people. Are you kidding me? You want to kill me after I just healed somebody? And sometimes I'm like, oh, it's good that I'm not God uh, because that would be pretty frustrated and exasperating because they, they were trying to attack him after all he had done to, to just recently bless somebody. But instead, what does Jesus do? 24, we just looked at. Truly, truly, again, those words. I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Basically, there's two groups of people in this world, and that's still present day true. Those who believe and those who don't believe. And they have very distinctly different eternal destinations, two distinctly different outcomes, judgment or eternal life. He's saying it hinges directly on belief. So in the middle of this confrontation, he's in the middle of confronting these malicious leaders, he's explaining to them how they can be rescued. It's a beautiful glimpse of God's character and the way he operates, even under opposition. Either way though, these men, and you don't know if they later thought about some of these words or what happened afterwards, but either way, they were without excuse. They literally stood before Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, where he explained things to them and they resisted and said, no, thank you. Sometimes you read texts like that and you're like, man, how could they be, have that right presented right to them, right to their face and still reject it? But isn't it true still today? Some are listening to this right now, hearing the truth directly explained to them and choosing to continue to resist without excuse. Verse 25, truly, truly, again, he's got with emphasis. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God, again, claim of deity, and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself, independent of anything else. It says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, he's expounding on the outcome of belief and unbelief, two outcomes based on that. Basically, he's saying there's a day that's coming where he's upon Jesus's command. He's gonna call people out of the grave. It's not crazy to think about that day on the horizon that at some point, uh, Jesus Christ will return. He's gonna call everyone to an account for their life and de depending on their belief will determine where they spend eternity, basically offering life or death. Sometimes people get a little confused about this because you're like, wait a second. I know as a New Testament believer that I've embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and that's how I've been rescued. And how about all of the other people that died before Jesus showed up here on earth, before he was present here, before the rescue came? Basically, you need to understand faith like this. Prior to Jesus, they had faith in what was to come. 
Old Testament believers were clinging to a future, trusting in what had been revealed to them at that point. For us, we have a faith in what has happened. Either way, whether it's faith moving, looking forward or faith looking back, both are saving faith. And at one point, God's gonna call man from the grave and he'll have to determine what they've done with Jesus Christ. Now, it might be a little bit confusing because in verse 29, it says, and when they come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's the important thing to understand. Some people will be like, well, that's, that seems to sound like it really depends on whether I've got done good stuff or whether I've done bad stuff. Now, make sure you understand that you take this in context of the rest of Scripture, even a few verses just earlier, that someone is only and solely rescued through belief. And out of that belief, that belief transforms the way that they act, the way that they behave. A, a belief that's genuine actually impacts every aspect of your life. It's just not just a, something you plan in your mind then go back to your old way of doing. It has ramifications. It, it translates into transformation. And so when he's describing that, when he's describing someone that's doing good deeds, Basically, that's an ex explanation of somebody that's embraced him already as Jesus Christ. Those who continue to do evil deeds is really everybody else. If you think about it, anybody else that's here on this planet that's trying to do good deeds, you probably even cross paths with them. People that you're like, hey, they're a pretty good person. They do a lot of good stuff. Really, even that is considered, not, as scripture describes, as filthy rags. Why is that? Why is it not acceptable before God? Because even in a subtle way, it's man's attempt of saying, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm gonna, go, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna skip the provision of Jesus Christ and I'm gonna earn my own favor with God. It's a subtle form of rebellion, whether somebody recognizes it or not. So here Jesus identifies this outcome of belief and unbelief, really two different destinations, basically life or death. So when we say it's a life and death decision, it genuinely is. All right, so here's a, a moment in time that I wanna give us a chance to actually engage with the text. And I gave these guys a little bit of a warning in advance, but not very much. So here in our next section of scripture, these uh, next, starting in verse 30, I'm gonna invite you to do something at home. I'm gonna bug people to do it on Sunday, most likely if this goes well. And, uh, and I'm gonna bug these guys to do it. What we're trying to do is Jesus going into this next section identifies four different witnesses to his deity. Basically four different things that uh, push towards or, uh, or point towards him as being God in the flesh. So what are those? I would say the best hint, and for you at home, is to look for the word witness. So what are the four witnesses? You can start underlining them now as I read through, see if you can pull them out. We're looking for four. It says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John <clears throat> and he was born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I have received is from man, 
but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have given is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. All right. So that's the section. There's a lot to cover. Let's see where we're at. Let's see if I'm putting these guys on, on notice. Okay, first one. What's the first one? That's if you're going to make a five. That if, okay, that'll be a, a, a five. But he says that doesn't, he says it doesn't count. Okay. Okay, since he says it doesn't count, what's the, what's the next one? John. Who's the John that they're talking about? The Baptist. John the baptizer. Yes, we've met him. Okay. Okay, no, number two. What's the second one? That's a testimony. They says it's even better than John himself. His own works. That's right. So basically what we've seen, he's demonstrated that he's the one uh, doing all these miraculous things that could only been, be done by God himself. So John the Baptist, one, his works, number two. Number three, what do you see? Father. The father, nice. Are you just copying what they're saying? Okay, okay. The father, uh, you know the last one. Okay, we're gonna be quiet and Adrian's gonna get at the last one. He, so... E even the father verbally bore witness. Anybody remember when that happened? When did that happen that the father bore witness? Ooh, ooh, ooh. When he's baptized, that's right. He says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine that voice? No one's ever heard from him. And they're hearing for the first time uh, the, the words of the, of the father. The fourth one, Adrian, what is it? The word, nice job, without any assistance. You guys did way better than I thought. Did you guys out here? We have a few people watching. Maybe they got it, maybe not. I won't pick on them. But basically, here's the idea. Four different ways that there's been witness. Basically, he's making a seal-proof case. He's like, John the Baptist bore witness. My actions, my miracles bear witness to my identity. God the Father bore witness to my identity. And then the scripture throughout Old Testament, everything has pointed to me as again, an argument for who he is. But here's the reality. His audience still refuses to believe. It's kind of a tough thing. When you present with somebody and you present as much truth as you possibly can, you lay out the facts, you lay out all of the basis for belief and you lay that out and you're just like, no, it doesn't matter what I lay out. I was in an interaction this past week and I was talking to someone and we we're talking about some faith issues and things that really, that are very important in our walk with the Lord and talking through and I was laying out this point, that point, another point and somewhere in the middle of the conversation, I realized, you know what? I'm not gonna argue somebody into understanding these things because why? What does it come down to? It comes down to a heart issue, right? 
It doesn't matter if we have the most logical presentation. If you don't, if, if Jesus himself can't convince somebody with his arguments, what makes us think that we're going to? So Jesus recognizes that. You see it as verse 43 says, I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. So he recognized they're not receiving them. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. He's confused and baffled by that. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Basically, Jesus is making this case Basically saying, what will it take? What will it take to get you to believe? They've clearly rejected it, even though he came in the Father's name, even though he's been doing the miraculous, even though signs and everything around it pointed towards us, it demonstrated his uh, identity, but still they're committed to just honoring each other, celebrating each other, patting each other on the back. And somehow in that, in the system that had been put in place, they missed the Messiah. Imagine for Jesus, as he keeps on interacting, he's like, oh man, this is just heartbreaking to watch happen. You think about it, he pushed a little button there where he says, not believing Moses's button, not, not believing Moses's button, not believing Moses's writings is the same thing. He spoke of me, Jesus is saying. He, all, the entire Old Testament points to me when he's saying Moses specifically, it's most likely a, a summary of the Pentateuch or the Old Testament, all pointing to this coming Messiah. Basically, this is a, a sad description because he's realizing that it doesn't matter what he does or what he says, these people are really at a place where they have hard hearts. And that's still present day when you think about it, this identity statement that Jesus is making, still with the left with the exact same decision to make. Still present day, it's really the same one. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe that he is? Is he a crazy man? Is he a lunatic? Or is he actually who he says he is? And here's still the exact still danger that we have today is when we acknowledge him as God, there's ramifications for that. There's change expected. You can't just go on living the exact same way once you acknowledge that he is God and he has some direction that he's intended for your life. For us, my hope and my prayer for anyone that's listening to this online or on Sunday when we chat about it is that this would not be another opportunity for you to dig in your heels. This might be the time that you finally submit and say, all right, I acknowledge the evidence is too thick. It's too deep. I, I've got to embrace Jesus as Lord. But then those of us that have embraced him and acknowledged Jesus is God, Jesus is God in an earth suit, a part of the Trinity. It, when we've embraced that, when we've acknowledged it, it really changes. I was thinking about that in relationship to this talk. It really changes the lens in which you see everything that's going on. Some people still might say, man, Scott, you're spending a lot of time just in this text when we're right ahead of an election. We're right in the middle of complete craziness on our planet. Why do, why do we keep doing that? But really, if you think about it, think about that statement for a second. 
if Jesus is God, we'll fill that sentence out. If Jesus is God, he's able and active to move and do things in your life, in our world, in our planet, in, in our relationships for us. If he actually is God, what did he say at the very beginning of this conversation? He says, I'm at work. Uh, I'm doing stuff. I, I'm, I'm actively involved in my creation. If Jesus is God, he's able and active. If Jesus is God, here's another one for us. What do his kids have to fear? What do his kids have to fear? Do we have to fear a virus? Do we have to fear social unrest? What, what do we have to fear if we're a child of the king? See how that changes the lens in which you see things. If Jesus is God, my day should revolve around him. This myth or this idea that it's my life to live and do whatever I want, as long as I have that fire insurance, I'm covered, I'm good to go. But instead, if Jesus is actually God, then he has a plan and design for your life that he expects you to follow. If Jesus is God, his words really matter. If Jesus is God, then this book should be a precious thing to us. If this is literally the word of God, every single word should be what we hang on, what we wrap our days around. It should drastically change things if he's God. If Jesus is God, his kids have access to the same power and resources that he had access to. These aren't, this isn't just Jesus' greatest hits, this book. God's still at work. He still wants to move in our lives, do, doing the fantastic. If we've settled for a, a version of Christianity absent of power, we're completely missing it. Last one, we'll end with this. If Jesus is God, there should be a skip in our step. I know that might sound a little bit cheesy. I was uh, just as I've mentioned a couple of times, I've become this like total pickleball nerd and uh, playing probably more hours after work than I, than I should be. But I was there the other night and I've somehow uh, in the course of interacting with people, some people I've gotten to know that uh, I'm a pastor by vocation. And so I met a, a couple uh, uh, a couple weeks back and I came up just to play some pickleball and the, the couple came up to me and starts explaining to me, man, she, the, the wife is just going through a really difficult time. And man, if, uh, do I know anything about intercessory prayer? I'm like, I don't know. I think that just means I pray for you. And, uh, and, so, and so I was like, man, I'd be, I'd be happy to pray. And so I invite the husband uh, to come with and we'd pray for her kind of stepping off to the side. And, uh, and the husband's like, no, you can take it from here. <laughs> kind of hand, handed off to have a conversation uh, with her. And uh, Adrian's playing pickleball, didn't even know all this is playing itself out. And as I was interacting with her, what I realized is the, the whole spirit of fear, even though she would claim to be a believer, which I believe her in, and the spirit of fear had kind of snuck into her life. I was like, oh man, you've got to understand as I'm praying for you, should, you should have a, a skip in your step. There shouldn't be much that you're worried about at all because of who you are. If his identity is God over all, judging all, in control of all, then what does that mean about our identity as a child of God? Man, it changes everything in which the lens that we see things. Well, my hope is this study allows us to give some thought to some of those things because when you start running things through that filter, man, I'll tell you what, it could change your outlook on everything if Jesus is God and we believe 
that he is. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to study and look at your words, not, not what people's ideas or suggestions are about your identity, but who you actually claimed to be. And what you claimed to be wasn't something that wasn't backed with evidence. Evidence was all around screaming of your identity. And I pray that that identity would be something that changes the lens in which we see things. Even going into the week ahead, God, we know that this is a heavy couple of weeks, but we know that you are sitting on the throne, have power over all and have our best interest in mind. And we praise you for that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
All right, church. Well, thank you again for your faithfulness, staying committed to these online services. We really hope it's a blessing to you and we really hope that some of these things take root and actually shape the way and lenses in which you see things. God bless you. Have an amazing week.